Lord Jesus, you are King of kings, and we give you praise because you are so willing to step off your heavenly throne to come to this world, to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins, to die in our place, and then be resurrected. And Lord Jesus, you started a movement that we get to be a part of even here today, a movement known as the church, a movement that you've empowered by your Holy Spirit, a movement that spans many, many centuries, many continents. But Lord, what a privilege it is to even gather here this morning. We get to be a part of the work that you are doing. And so I pray that as we open the scripture, that you will give us fresh insights into how we live faithfully for you and represent you to the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, last week we saw the Apostle Paul recruited a young man named Timothy to be a co-worker of his. And they served as co-workers for many, many years. And the relationship between Paul and Timothy was like father and son. Now, near the end of Paul's life, he wrote a letter to Timothy. We know it as 2 Timothy. It's recorded in the scripture. In that letter, he wrote this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And that last sentence is key, that they, to suit their own desires, will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Paul here is describing what we know today as an echo chamber which is when people listen only to the voices that they want to hear. And when we look at the issues happening in our society and even in churches today, Paul's teaching here is very relevant. And the question for us is, how do we make sure that we are following God and not merely building echo chambers that sound nice, but are a long way from God's heart and God's will? I mean, that is a massive topic, a massive question. And today we're going to be addressing this, at least from a few different angles, as we continue our series that is on the origin story of the church. And so I invite you to turn to the Bible this morning to Acts chapter 17. And if you're using a Bible from the pew, Acts 17 is on page 1115. Now as you're turning there, I want to start with a map. Last week we left Paul and Silas and Timothy and some others in a city called Philippi. And today they're going to be moving on. Acts 17.1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now these are all cities in northern Greece, in a region that was known then as Macedonia. Now Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. And it still exists today by the name Thessaloniki. And it's actually the second largest city in Greece even today, behind only Athens. Now, Thessaloniki, the modern city, is built on top of the ancient city. I mean, it's kind of a weird feeling when you drive around the city today because in the midst of lots of contemporary apartment buildings and and shopping complexes and such, you also have these sections of ruins because the modern city is built on top of the ancient city. Now later today, we're going to see back to the map that Paul went on from Thessalonica to Berea and then all the way down to Athens. 
So now that we're oriented a little bit geographically, let's see what Luke writes about their time in Thessalonica. Please follow along as I read Acts 17, 1 through 9. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and they've come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So from this passage, we see that as usual, Paul is starting in the Jewish synagogues. And it says in verse 2 that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And this shows that the gospel is based on truth claims about God and about his work through Jesus. You can hear that in the verbs used to describe what Paul did. That he reasoned. He's explaining. He is proving. These are truth claims. Now, near the end of my first year in seminary, I came home from classes one day, and there was a message on my answering machine. It was from a pastor I'd never heard of, and he was offering me an all-expense-paid trip to go to Bulgaria and Greece and Turkey to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. It's kind of one of those things that sounds too good to be true. But it was true. Charlie and I went, and it was an amazing experience. Now imagine that you hear me explaining this, and you think in your mind, ah, he's just pulling her leg. That type of thing doesn't really happen. So imagine that you don't believe the claim I just made that I went on that trip. What could I do to try to prove that to you? I mean, I imagine that perhaps I would pull out pictures of me and Shelley in cities like Corinth or Athens, Thessalonica or Philippi, and show you, hey, look, we're in the pictures. We were there. Or I could pull out my passport and show you that I really did travel to those places. Or I could even get you on the phone with the seminary professor who recommended me for that grant without my knowledge. Very thankful he did that. But I could get you on the phone to him, and I could do all these things because that assertion that I went on this trip, that is a truth claim. And I can reason with you about it. I can explain it to you. I can try to prove it to you because it is a truth claim. that You can use logical reasoning to determine, did Brandon go? Or did he not? Is he telling the truth? Or is he lying? Now similarly, the gospel is based on truth claims about God and his work through Jesus. When Paul was in the synagogue, the evidence that he was pointing to was the Hebrew Bible, using that to show that Jesus is 
the Messiah, to, to reason with the people, to, to explain it to the people, to prove, again, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the biggest sticking point in the synagogue was the claim that the Messiah died on a cross. Because for most of the Jews, their natural reaction would be like, nah, he's just pulling our leg. That type of stuff isn't really what could happen. God wouldn't do that type of thing. I mean, they'd be pretty passionately against that. Verse 3 says that Paul, quote, was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul is asking people to discern and to follow what is true. And verse 4 says that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So many people, men and women in Thessalonica, turned to Jesus. Now, it says that Paul ministered in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. That would be approximately maybe up to about three weeks in the synagogue. But we also know, because Paul wrote some letters to the Thessalonians recorded in the New Testament, we know that he was in Thessalonica for longer than just three weeks. And we know that he ministered to a lot of non-Jewish people. They built deep, caring relationships with them that took longer than just three weeks to build. So what's going on there? Why just three Sabbaths in the synagogue? It's because a lot of Jewish leaders did not want Paul and Silas in the synagogue anymore. They closed the doors of the synagogue after three Sabbaths. They're no longer welcome there. And verse 5 gives the reason. It says, but the Jews were jealous. They were jealous. They did not like the influence that these upstart Christians from out of town were having on the people around them in that city. And we need to understand here that emotions and perceptions can short-circuit the reasoning process and keep people from Jesus and from other forms of truth. A few months ago, I read a book by a psychologist and university professor named Jonathan Haidt. And he uses the analogy of an elephant with a rider on the elephant. And each one of those, the elephant and the rider, represent something. The rider represents a person's conscious mind with its logical and rational thinking. Whereas the elephant represents a person's emotions and intuition, motives, prejudices, personality. And those things represented by the elephant are typically subconscious or even unconscious. People don't realize that those are going on even though they influence the person. Now the elephant is obviously bigger than the rider. And it shows that our emotions and our intuitions oftentimes are incredibly powerful. They happen automatically, even very, very quickly. It happens before our logical reasoning has a chance to kick in. And then when we do begin to reason logically, oftentimes that reasoning is influenced by our intuitions and by our emotions that already have begun to shape us. What this means is that our view of things is not merely shaped by logical reasoning, but frequently and powerfully by our emotions and our intuitions and our perceptions. We see this happening here in Acts 17. That Paul, he was reasoning with the Jews. He was reasoning using that logical side of the brain. But many of them were not interested in logical explanations. Jealousy took over, which caused them to oppose Paul and to oppose Jesus, no matter what was said. So they were not interested in reasoning 
they were driven by emotional jealousy. I mean, they were stuck in an echo chamber, fueled by emotion and prejudice and self-preservation. And this type of dynamic happens all the time with all kinds of topics, both large and small. I mean, in ministry, I think of how many people have emotional barriers to the gospel that are based on things like bad experiences or things they've heard, people they've interacted with, fears they get stirred up when they hear about submitting to Jesus. People have all kinds of emotional barriers that end up creating a jaded perspective toward Jesus and Christians that causes them not to take seriously the gospel if they're presented with it. Because the emotional barriers prevent them from reasoning logically. And this is one of the big reasons why meaningful relationships between Christians and skeptics are so important. Because in the context of a meaningful, trusting relationship, it can help to overcome those initial negative reactions and build a bridge that then can help someone to take the gospel seriously because of the context of that relationship where on their own they probably would not. But back here to Thessalonica, the Jews, many of them, were not at all interested in either reason or relationships. All they were focused on was this echo chamber of fear and jealousy that made them want to silence Paul and Silas in any way possible, essentially to cancel them from the situation. And so what happened is that the Jews in Thessalonica riled up the city against Paul and Silas. And what they do, it's from a historical perspective, just kind of looking at how it's explained, it, to me it's quite entertaining, really. But it's also kind of sad. But let me explain what took place here. I mean, it's definitely some, some big stuff taking place. It's in verses 5 through 9. I'm going to explain for us. It says, first of all, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble. And so those wicked, wicked men from the rabble, those were troublemakers. Those were shady characters from around town. Those were criminals. And these are the people, the Jewish people who were opposed to Paul and Silas. They, they, they gathered those people and said, hey, can you help us get rid of Paul and Silas? And it says they formed a mob. And mobs are not known for their wisdom or restraint. And it says they set the city in an uproar. I mean, more and more people are getting pulled in and getting riled up about what's taking place. And it says the mob attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring Paul and Silas out to the crowd. Now you may be wondering, who's Jason? That's a great question. We haven't been introduced to him before. Jason evidently is a new Christian in Thessalonica who's opened up his home to host Paul and Silas and all their companions while they're in Thessalonica. And so the mob came to Jason's house hunting for Paul and Silas. And in verse 6 it says, When they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of their brothers before the city authorities. So the mob now is in a frenzy. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they grab Jason, they grab some other Christians, they drag them out into the city square. And while they do, this, do so, they shout, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And these were some incredibly serious charges in that culture. Even dangerous charges for Paul and Silas. 
First of all, they said these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, that phrase of people who turn the world upside down, that, that sounds kind of like a cool phrase. But it was a very sinister idea that was being talked about there. I think of the mu musical Hamilton. If you're familiar with that musical, you may have this phrase of the world turned upside down in your mind. It took place in that musical just after the Americans won their independence from Britain. And there's this scene where the British shoulder, soldiers are walking off stage. And as they do so, they are quietly singing, the world turned upside down. The world turned upside down. They repeat that quietly as they exit the stage. And what they mean is that the world that they've known no longer exists. Society has been turned upside down. Previously, the Brits were on top. But now they have been defeated. Now they've lost. Everything they knew about the world is disrupted. It's a very disconcerting feeling. And the mob in Thessalonica is claiming that Christians are turning the world upside down that disruptive way. That they're turning social order and turning uh, stability in society upside down. They're charging these Christians have started a revolution, a very unwelcome revolution in the Roman Empire. They've brought that revolution now to Thessalonica. So they're trying to say these Christians are dangerous for the health of society. Now we have to understand the Christians, they were not doing anything violent. They weren't using intimidation tactics. They were not uh, doing riots in the streets. They were not being quarrelsome. What they were doing was simply discussing the gospel with people. And they were loving on people. And in the process, there were people turning to Jesus. There were people, individuals' lives who were being changed, and that began to change social dynamics. And, and so the people who liked the status quo in the city, who benefited from the status quo, they did not like what was happening. And so they opposed these Christians with everything they had. The mob also shouted, they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now throughout the Roman Empire, it was well known that there was only one king, and that king is Caesar, who is the Roman emperor. And in fact, there are cities, it was quite common, there are cities in the Roman Empire who would write pledges of allegiance to Caesar. These were oaths or, or pledges um, of loyalty that the citizens of that city were expected to follow. Here's an example. One city wrote, I swear... That I will support Caesar, his children and descendants throughout my life, in word, deed, and thought. That in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body nor soul, nor soul, nor life, nor children. That whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whosoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. And then here are Paul and Silas. And the mob is saying, hey, those two, they are leading people to express a loyalty greater to Jesus than to Caesar. So those people are in the wrong. We need to shut them down however we can. So essentially, Paul and Silas are being charged with treason and with leading a revolution, causing many, many others to, to follow in this treason against Caesar. 
I think it's valuable to recognize there are kernels of truth in these charges. I mean, they're certainly angled in such a way as to make Paul and Silas look really bad, overstating things perhaps, but there are still kernels of truth. Because, for instance, Jesus is a king who came to launch God's kingdom. And wherever Christians live, we do have a higher allegiance than to any earthly government. Our ultimate allegiance is to be to King Jesus. Now, we should still be good earthly citizens, but our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. Now, verse 8 says, The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And so the Jews and the mob, they, they made it look like Paul and Silas were directly trying to oppose Caesar. And so they were bent uh, on shutting down Paul and Silas however possible. In verse 9, it says, When they had taken money as security from Jason and from the rest, they let them go. So Jason and the rest of the Christians who were gathered there by the mob, they were released, they could go back home. But that money was essentially a pledge that Paul and Silas will leave the city. And really, I think it's in the best interest of everyone there, including the Christians, that Paul and Silas do move on. Because if they had stayed, this little church would have become the lightning rod of the city's wrath, all directed toward that church. But time has shown that even as Paul and Silas did leave that city, the Thessalonian church was able to stand on its own where Paul and Silas got it started. But the goal is for it to stand on its own, and it did, even without them. Let's pick up in verse 10 to see what happens next. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So that's another city a little ways away. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So you see, once again, they're starting in the synagogue. Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so we see the Jews in Berea were more open to considering the gospel than those in Thessalonica. It says that Paul met with them every day they were interested in hearing what Paul had to say about Jesus, but they were not just accepting it blindly. Verse 11 says, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They did not take Paul just, just at face value at his word. They wanted to, to look at evidence from scripture to see what, if what Paul was saying was true. And Paul definitely could have been offended by this. I mean, he could have just said, hey, come on, just believe me here. I'm the Apostle Paul. Just take me at my word. I'm telling you the truth. But no, they wanted to dig into Scripture to see if what he was saying was actually valid and true. And they're commended for this. And because of that approach to the gospel, with open minds, yet digging into Scripture to see if it was true, it says because of that, many of them therefore believed because they took it seriously with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So women and men both were turning to Jesus and Berea. And Luke's summary is that those Berean Jews were, quote, more noble than those in Thessalonica. And this is a point of pride among Bereans ever since, about being called noble right in the words 
of Scripture. If you go to Berea today, you will see a monument to this event of Paul sharing the gospel with them and their openness to the gospel. Now what made them noble? It's that rather than remaining stuck in their echo chambers, they diligently sought God's truth, which led them to Jesus. Now, I, I think this would be a nice way to conclude the message today, just with this happy ending of people turning to Jesus. I mean, it, it was rocky earlier, but now it's all happy and nice. But this is not how the story ends. Instead, there are some big fireworks that takes place. Let's look at verse 13. It says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica, remember Thessalonica where they were driven out of there by the riot? When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So you get these Jews who drove them out of Thessalonica, but then they get word, hey, they're down in Berea now. I mean, that's a multi-day journey. But they chase them down, chase down Paul and Silas in Berea. They start a riot in Berea as well. Verse 14 says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And that's where we're going to conclude for today. In a couple weeks after the missionaries here next week, we will pick up with Paul in Athens, a very fascinating account. But just reading all this, I just think, wow. I mean, the, the origin story of the church is certainly not boring. Now, earlier I asked the question, how do we make sure that we are following God and not merely building echo chambers that sound nice but are a long way from God's heart and will? I mean, this is a big question. There's a ton we could say about this, but from today's passage, I want to point out two principles. And the first principle is this. Examine how your emotions, perceptions, and background influence your ability to reason in a wise and godly manner. Because we are all influenced by emotions, by perceptions, by our background. Those shape who we are, shape how we react, shape how we think about things. So we need to look at ourselves and think, how are we shaped by our emotions, by our background, by our perceptions? And recognize how these influence us for better and for worse. Because then by recognizing what's influencing us, it's going to help us to see, you know, maybe we've created an echo chamber over here. Maybe we are believing things that that's not the whole truth. Maybe we need to compensate in a different way over here so that we can better discern what God's truth is in these topics. Because as we identify what those blind spots are, as we compensate for them, it's going to help us to learn and to grow and to have better relationships and better represent Jesus to the world around us. Let me just give you one example of how this could play out. I mean, think about someone that you've struggled with relationally. Maybe it's in your family in your workplace or school or maybe here at church? Is your jaded view of them preventing you from recognizing when they make a good point? Because pretty much anyone will at times make a good point. But sometimes our emotions are so heightened against them that we are not caring about them anymore. We're not interested in the thing they have to say. But they're still around us. There's probably still some stuff we can learn from them 
if we will only open our heart a little bit more. So we need to examine how our emotions, perceptions, and background influence our ability to reason in a wise, godly manner. And the second principle is this. Dig deeply into Scripture to learn God's heart and will and use Scripture to discern the truthfulness of people's claims. You know, digging the Scripture deeply is vital. Because if we aren't regularly digging the Scripture, we're going to be much more prone to fall for arguments that sound nice or fall for arguments that quote from Bible passages but are not actually biblical. Because, I mean, that can happen all the time where people quote from the Bible, but what they're saying is not actually biblical. It's called proof texting. And in fact, you can prove or support almost anything from the Bible if you find the right verses and pull them out of their context. It's called proof texting. You're not actually then teaching someone biblical, but it can confuse people to make it sound biblical because you're quoting from the Bible. This shows the importance of digging deep in the Scripture to understand deeply the heart and the nuances and the meaning of what's really there deeply. Not just on a surface level of pulling out a verse here and there to support our favorite stances. Now here at, at church on Sunday mornings, we offer a great class called Digging in the Scripture. That's walking through books of the Bible together, just studying Scripture together to help us learn what is there to help us gain competence in handling Scripture wisely? Because digging deep into Scripture helps us to discern God's heart and will. And related to that, we should use Scripture to discern the truthfulness of people's claims because people claim things all the time. I mean, all the time. I'm claiming things up here right now. But I would say, you know what? Go to Scripture. Make sure that what I'm saying aligns with what you read in the Bible. We hear truth claims all the time on TV shows and on social media, on YouTube videos and podcasts and memes at school, at work, in the neighborhood. You hear truth claims all the time. It's good to be open so that we continue to grow, but it's not good to be gullible. Where we, we need to be ready to learn. We need to be people who are good listeners, but not necessarily blindly accept everything that other people say hook, line, and sinker. We need to be ready to do our research to see, you know what, is what I'm hearing actually true? With the Bible being our number one resource in that research. Now to be sure, the Bible doesn't say everything about everything. There are topics the Bible doesn't really address all that much. And there are topics the Bible does address that still there's some complexity or nuances or ambiguity about how to actually apply it in specific situations. But at the same time, there are a lot of principles and things to think about when we use Scripture as our guide. And as the Bible soaks into us, we gain a feel for God's heart and His will, which helps us as we navigate the complexities of this world. And we look at Paul and Silas as they continue in their journeys, and I mean, they're having so many different ups and downs, so many different reactions they're experiencing to the gospel and to their teaching. And if we're seeking to follow Jesus, we're going to, face those same types of different reactions. Some people are going to be excited to hear about Jesus. Some definitely not. Sometimes there are going to be things that are difficult or confusing. But what we've seen today can help us to follow and represent Jesus well in the midst of a crazy world where people love to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
And for us, rather than gathering around us people who will be an echo chamber for us, saying only what we want to hear, instead, let us be diligent to follow the voice of King Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you give us scripture to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us so that we'll be thoroughly equipped for following you and representing you and the world around us. Lord, we need your wisdom and your discernment because our world is so complex. It is very tricky. But Lord, help us to have that wisdom and discernment to know how to honor you in our interactions as we're making decisions, as we want to represent you to those around us. Lord, I pray that you will open doors for ministry and that we will make the most of those opportunities and that by the power of your spirit that you will be transforming lives in our community and beyond so that more and more people will come to know Jesus and see that he is better than anything this world has to offer, that he is king who's worthy of our utmost worship and allegiance. We pray these things in his name.